Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for yet another edition of the Foundation Podcast. This is Kevin Roberts, your host, sitting with me, someone I'm proud to call a colleague at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And friend. And friend, even more importantly, Colonel Alan West. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Kevin. Thank you. Sir, you have a distinguished career. You're humble, so you don't want a long introduction. But for the very few people out there who might not know what you've done before sitting with us here on the Foundation Podcast, served in Congress, decorated soldier, Thank you, Colonel West, for your service to our country. It's, it's my pleasure, and I think that that is, you know, if you truly take that oath and you believe in it, uh, no matter in uniform or out, you continue to serve this great nation. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. This week, I think all of you who find time to listen to the podcast are in for a treat, because not only do we have one of the most articulate messengers in the conservative free market movement with us, we're talking about a hero for each of us, and that's Booker T. Washington. Absolutely. Someone who, over time, has been very fittingly a hero for people of color, but also for a large number of us who happen to be white, a hero for us as well. Because his message of making sure that we are pulling ourselves up from the bootstraps, that we love this country, that we work hard, and that we look for assistance in an old-fashioned way, which is from community members and family members, is one that I think transcends whatever differences we may have in how we appear. And as a historian of this country, having studied Washington, I know that he was right when it came to this long-standing dispute between him and W.B. Du Bois. We'll get into a little bit of that today because we have to provide some historical context. But most importantly, I think what we want to do for listeners who've maybe heard about Booker T. Washington is a couple of things. Number one, give them a little more information about why his life story is so inspiring to any of us, regardless of our background. But secondly, use his lifetime, his career, his really life's work Mm -hmm. as a way of looking into the future of America itself as sort of a roadmap of what we can do better in education, what we can do better in public policy writ large. So this is going to be a wide-ranging conversation, and we'll sort of pretend that Booker T. Washington is sitting here with us. It's how I like to, to sort of think about history. Sure. We, we talk about our founders of this country that way. What would Jefferson think? What yeah. would President Washington think? I'd like for our listeners with this episode, whatever their ages, wherever they're living, whatever they look like, to ask that question, Regarding public policy, regarding some idea, some issue that I'm really interested in, what would Booker T. Washington say? And so with that in mind, Alan, let's jump into this new initiative that we've started here at the foundation. We're, of course, get into some of the specifics about legislation, about some of the public policy. But even more importantly right now, before we get into that, let's talk about Booker T. Washington himself and why you find him such an important hero, generally, but also why he's such a fitting figure to represent all of these ideas for liberty and limited government and self-reliance. Well, I will tell you, thanks so much, Kevin. First and foremost, I would 
ask your listeners to go out there and get the book Up From Slavery. It's an incredible read, and, and it's not a long read. It's perfect for a paratrooper like myself, a University of Tennessee graduate, uh, short and to the point. And you really get inside the mind of the man that I call the true first black conservative thought leader. And I think that he is a relevant conservative leader today. And when you look at his life, when you look at someone that was born into slavery, and his quest, his desire to earn an education, you know, came from him standing outside of a schoolhouse and looking in. I mean, that's the type of burning desire that we all should have, because as my parents once taught me, education is the thing that unlocks all the doors. It, it, it is the breakdown of all barriers to opportunity. And Booker T. Washington understood that. And he so vehemently wanted to have that education that when he became a young free man, the first thing he wanted to do was seek out a place where he could get educated. And it took him quite some time to between take, taking a, a wagon train uh, and then also walking from present day West Virginia all the way over to Hampton, Virginia. And the fact that when he ran out of money, he stopped in Richmond and slept under a sidewalk you know, so that he could earn some money working and continue on his journey. That's the type of, you know, drive and determination, I think, that is so often missing here in the United States of America, where the culture of the participation trophy has taken over, where everyone's sitting in back and saying, what am I going to receive? What am I going to get? We forget that this country is about the pursuit of happiness, not someone trying to guarantee your happiness. And that's the difference between the individual liberty and freedom that TPS stands for and the collective subjugation that the progressive socialists left and places like Center for American Progress, which is really Center for American Regress, you know, uh, looks at. So think about this. How can you be any young person, any person at all in the United States of America and complain about where you are in your state of life when here is the life of a man that was a slave that ended up creating an incredible institution that still stands to the day, Tuskegee University, a man that as a, as a freed slave hosted a president of the United States of America, a man that was once a free slave that visited and, and was hosted in the White House by our president, a man that spoke before an incredible you know, gathering of prominent white Americans in the South, in Atlanta, my hometown, the Atlanta Exposition at the turn of the century, a man that traveled and gave speeches and lectures all across Europe. But he was born into slavery. He didn't sit around and ask for reparations or anything like that. He said, just allow me to be on this level playing field so I can have a pursuit of happiness, which is an education. And his, you know, three point mantra, education, entrepreneurship and self-reliance. And I think that this is a great thing that TPF is going to endeavor upon. Well, it's just striking as I, I listen to you explain his life's work in a nutshell. We'll delve into a couple of, of those aspects in, in more detail momentarily that here in the 21st century, a little more than 100 years after he died, mm -hmm. and that was 1915, that we have lost not just the ability to talk about those goals of self-reliance and liberty and free enterprise. We're not even inculcating in our youngest generations, formally through public schools or informally through community organizations, through conversations on the street, that and I think it's all the more reason that we need to, to sort of embrace Booker T. Washington and, and reinvigorate mm -hmm. him as a leader of this country. 
the and then I, I think also as a historian, we we have had this recent controversy, which is a project of people who are left of center of tearing down statues, yeah. particularly from the Confederate era. Although now they've moved on to other eras. Yeah, William and, McKinley. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. I, McKinley, the McKinley example, just yeah. I can't grapple with. I, I don't understand that one. But I have suggested to some people as a way of calming all of this down that if you're concerned, say, in a city in Texas that you've got statues of all of these white guys and rather than erase the historical record, let's complement it. Let's balance it. And so let's go find people of color here in Texas, not just African-Americans, but Hispanics, maybe even Asians. Uh, I think we all agree with that. Where are the statues of Booker T. Washington? Well, that's the interesting thing, because if you understand the juxtaposition that was created between Booker T. Washington and when white socialists Mm -hmm. were the ones that really created the NAACP and they put W.E.B. Du Bois, who was once a friend of Washington, in charge because they wanted to take the community in a different direction. Instead of the the education, instead of the building the productive skills, instead of being able to go out there and show, as he would say, not just here in America, but anywhere all across the world, your value and your worth because what you are able to contribute, they wanted what Washington called the political agitation. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, look at where we are today. Uh, where you have these same organizations, the NAACP, the National Urban League, Black Lives Matter. And what are they doing? They're doing the political agitation. But yet we have gotten away from talking about the, the basic blocking and tackling. Mm-hmm. How do we educate ourselves with productive skills? How do we go out there and show that you know, we can compete, we can you know, be a part of any society, any community, because we bring something to the table? And that was Washington's mantra. And so what you end up having seen over the, the, the course of history is the word sellout. And the word the Uncle Tom and all of the, the Oreo and all of these things, because those were the denigrating uh, invectives that were used against Booker T. Washington that are still used today. So why is it that we don't see the statues? Why is it that we don't see the memor- memorials to him? Because he is 180 degrees away from the message of the progressive socialist left that you see that is decimating our urban centers all across the United States of America. Sure. And at the very time that he died, that decade, the 1910s, Du Bois and, and the, his, his white socialist allies, mm-hmm. who, of course, were professors in universities, had, had already, no, don't, don't <laughs> I know this is academics. difficult to believe, <laughs> were in the first phase of their co-opting the institution known as the American University. Mm-hmm. And as I've told people, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, when conservatives would say that, they might be portrayed as conspiracy theorists. But now we know in 2018, no, this, this is the real deal. Yeah. And it really begins with, with this controversy, this dispute between Washington and Du Bois. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, just in a nutshell, because we can get well into the weeds on that, what in fact, in just a handful of sentences, is the summary of that dispute between those two men? I think the dispute is about who has the control, Mm -hmm. Uh, because what Washington and and it comes back to the the two delineating things between, I say, constitutional conservatism and progressive socialism. It is about individual liberties and freedoms as, as opposed to collectivism and collective subjugation. And so what Booker T. Washington wanted was the individual to be empowered. 
But yet, I think when you look at W.B. Du Bois, the NAACP, as it was starting the progressive left, that movement, it was about the, the enslavement still. Not with the physical change, but a different type of means of enslavement. And that's what we see today. It's an economic enslavement. And you look at these inner city communities and you see the despair, the despondency. Uh, that's what we have all, you know, after a century some odd. And, and what really put it on hyperdrive were the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, you know, quote unquote, war on poverty, which put more people in poverty than, than anything else. So I think that this is a great study that we should have. And, and why don't we have a public policy course being taught at many of the universities that look at Booker T. Washington and what he did in establishing Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute and make it relevant to today? As well said, sometimes I like to use the exercise of reading or thinking about history backwards. Mm -hmm. And so if in 2018, those of us who care about public policy, also about the political philosophy which undergirds that, what we would say, not at all being derisive, not at all calling into question people's intentions, is that 50 years of the great society, the so-called war on poverty, has done something that is far worse than merely wasting money. It's far worse than merely dividing the left and right unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. It's actually gone to the very heart of what it is to be a human person. Because one of the ways we establish our dignity as human persons is through work. Mm -hmm. And so if I continue this idea of, of using this, this historical exercise of going backwards, we then go to the 1960s, which is one of the factors, as you pointed out, particularly with the Great Society programs, and then go all the way back to when Booker T. Washington was founding Tuskegee Institute. He understood two things. Right off the bat, number one, there was no way that he or any group of former slaves were going to be successful in ending segregation right away. No. That was a very unfortunate fact, yeah. but it was reality. And so, therefore, rather than have kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea about snapping your fingers, waving a magic wand. And you're in utopia. And you're in utopia, which the academic left likes to stay in. He said, let's take this steady progression of doing what we can, pushing the envelope where we can. And what does that rest on? It rests on work and on practical skills. Yes. For We're talking about the late 19th century. Yes. And you, you wrote an op-ed about this in the last couple of weeks in one of the Texas papers. And I'll just quote one paragraph from that. Washington's philosophy of education was all-encompassing. He sought to educate the whole person. Alongside book learning, he taught practical skills. Tuskegee students built the institute with their own hands. They manufactured the very mattresses upon which they slept. They grew their own food and even grew enough to sell their bounty. Yeah, I mean, they even had a, a, a brick-making facility there. I mean, they built Tuskegee Institute. You know, there's a great story from the book uh, Up From Slavery, and it's about, uh, you know, Brooker T. Washington walking through Tuskegee, heading back to the university, and a white woman sees him and asks him to come over and chop some wood for him. He takes off his top coat, he goes over, he chops the wood, and thank you, ma'am, goes on about his day. Then later on, people, you know, inform her, do you know who that was? That was, you know, Booker T. Washington, the head of Tuskegee. And, and she was so apologetic, but he said, you know what, there's nothing wrong with work. 
There is nothing wrong with stopping and doing labor. And she became one of the greatest benefactors and donors to that institution because of that simple humility. When he could have been very arrogant, which was the path that W.B. Du Bois and, and those folks took, instead he, he showed his worth, he showed his value, he showed his humanity. And that's the critical thing. And so when you look at how many successful black businessmen that you had at the turn of the century, Madam C.J. Walker, one of the first, uh, before Oprah Winfrey, I mean, one of the first black uh, female millionaires. Or you think about the fact George Washington Carver and what he was able to do at Tuskegee. You think about the Tuskegee Airmen. There was a reason why the Tuskegee Airmen happened at Tuskegee Institute. Because it was all about an indomitable spirit that said you can overcome any circumstance, any situation, as long as you have that, dr that drive and determination and a quality education that makes you equal to anyone. And, and that's why the important thing, Kevin, that I think TPPF and what we can learn from Booker T. Washington, and I think if he were here today, he'd say it's about an equality of opportunity. It's not about an equality of outcomes. And I think that is the delineating factor, again, between, you know, liberty, freedom, the individualism and collectivism. Collectivism is about someone else deciding your outcomes. But individualism, what this country stands for, true liberty, is about you being empowered to be able to decide your outcomes based upon your opportunities. That's exactly right. And it, it makes me think about sort of fast forwarding from the late 19th century up to today, one of the problems we face in education. And that is what I like to call the false egalitarianism mm -hmm. of everyone going to college, mm -hmm. which is not a statement about anyone's intellect. It's really a statement about where they're going to find their, their greatest dignity and the work that, that is their life's work. And I, Booker T. Washington, I think more than any other education figure in the history of this country, understood that. And so today, what, what do we have as a result? We have Number one, a federal government that subsidizes the market to the point that it has, as our economist friends would like to call, perverted it yeah. so that we have some perverse incentives. We have the average student loan debt, $29,000 per student. We have the lowest six-year and four-year college graduation rates in the history, modern history of this country. And we also have businessmen and businesswomen all over this country in every industry who are practically beside themselves trying to find skilled labor Absolutely. because no one wants to work with their hands Absolutely. As, as if there's, there's this belief that you don't have full dignity if for some reason you have a trade. And, and that's completely wrong. And, and when you look at what has happened on our college and university campuses and even to some respect down to high schools, sure. they've become laboratories of indoctrination not places of education. You know, I taught one year of high school in Deerfield Beach when I retired from up here in Fort Hood, Texas, and that was such an enjoyable experience. I volunteered to go back to Afghanistan because, <laughs> I mean, you know, we weren't educating kids. We were trying to teach kids how to take a test because someone in government had made the decision that if the kids are successful on the test, then you can get federal funding. What a horrible way to try to go down the, the path of educating our future generations. And so if, if Booker T. Washington were alive today as the Secretary of Education, first of all, he would probably say, you don't need a Secretary of Education. This is why we empower down at the local levels. But we should make education relevant. So we are training and equipping and preparing people to go out to be productive members in their own societies and communities. And that's not what we're doing. And so you have, as, as I saw a report, Elkhart, Indiana, looking for 9,000 people 
to come and work there. I mean, they're trying to spruce up the town and everything. So why do we have these good quality, high paying, skilled jobs that we can't produce people to go into? Because someone has perverted the meaning of education. And, and they say, well, it's more about the indoctrination than preparing people to go out and be productive members. Well, th- thank you for the explanation for our listeners. I think you're already getting a sense of how significant Booker T. Washington is in history. And if you're like most Americans, you're probably now pretty irritated that this might be the first time you've gotten such a full exp- explanation. And you ought to be. And so what we want to do in this, this next phase of this episode is talk about all of those ways, all of those different policies and modern ideas that Washington's work informs. And so what we've done here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and this is relevant whether you're listening to this podcast in Texas or Washington, D.C. or somewhere internationally, is use Washington's example to put together a package of policies that we think, if he were sitting with us here today, that he would say, yes, this is the answer. And so, Colonel West, tell us just a snapshot of what those policies are. Well, I think that first and foremost, you look at how we reform our system of education. Our system of education has to be about developing critical thinking skills and productive members that can go out and uh, be a part of our society. So moving away from the you know, insidious thing of teaching kids how to take a test, you, know, you have uh, the competency-based education. Uh, study that you're looking at. That's exactly what Booker T. Washington was talking about. You know, when when I was a kid in high school, I'm 57, so maybe some of y'all remember, we had woodshop, we had automobile mechanic, we had things that, you know, we were teaching kids a trade even in high school. But you have to, you know, what is the use of a Pythagorean theorem? Some kids are going to say, what the heck I need to learn that for? Now you got to teach them the relevance of that. And I think that that's a revolutionary thought uh, for us to transform education. Entrepreneurship. We should be developing the next generation of entrepreneurs, even coming out of high school. You know, we shouldn't have to wait for college or, or even later, but we should start developing sense, a sense of ingenuity, innovation, and, uh, you know, that entrepreneurship, just the same as those kids there at, at uh, Tuskegee were building bricks. So that then they could go out and they knew how to start their own brick making factory. And guess what? People wanted to build buildings because it was, you know, coming out of the post-Civil War and the Industrial Revolution. And we were seeing, you know, economic growth down south. I think also when you look at your criminal justice reform work that you're doing, you know, just because we incarcerate people, we should not stop, you know, providing them the right and proper education like Tuskegee was normal and industrial uh, institution. So we need to start looking at how we can develop those critical skills that are necessary because we want the rate of recidivism to drop. And the only way the rate of recidivism drops is that when people are released, paroled or whatever, they can come back and say, hey, look, man, I'm not coming back to the streets. You know, I got a skill. I'm going to go out. I got another chance. I'm going to work hard. I want to start a family. That's the lessons. And then you don't have this continual cycle of Oh, well, you know, I want to go to jail, too, because I can go to jail and be cool and come back and hang out. No, you know, I want to do as you're doing. Wake up and go out and work hard because there's something dignified. My, my mom taught me self-esteem only comes from doing esteemable things. And that's what Washington believes. And when you look at regulatory reform. We need to break down the regulations that are impeding people from being able to go out and start their own businesses. You know, look at the, the occupational licensing. 
I, I mean, there's a reason why I cut my own hair. Because in the last 15 to 20 years, I've seen the price of a haircut, you know, go from like three bucks 25, and now it's like $15. I can do it myself, okay? <laughs> and, the, and the sad thing is that when you walk into these barber shops or beauty salons or whatever, you see a whole wall with all these licenses that someone has to have. Well, guess what? Every single one of those things is money. And every single one of those things requires hours away from them being able to do their business. So we need to break that down so that as we're training people to have these relevant skills, they can go out there and start their own businesses. So I think that that is the correlation between the, uh, the, the policies of Washington then and the practices and how he saw education to the policies and practice we can implement today. You know, I, that resonates with me and I'm sure with a lot of our listeners because we talk often on this podcast and at the Texas Public Policy Foundation about our public policy work having an impact on real people. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have a tendency, whether in the academic institutions of this country or in public policy, to get sort of too smart, too cute by half. And, and that's always been the problem is that, you know, people hear public policy and they think, okay, it's a bunch of smart folks sitting around in a room and they're making each other feel good because they produced a paper. But when you look at this man, Booker T. Washington, this is something that Joe and Jane Sixpack, every single American can understand they can get because it is truly about the dignity of the individual being able to go out and produce for themselves and be a contributing member to the community and society. And that should be the, the, the real goal of education. Mm -hmm. Not going in and say, I want you to think like me. And if you don't think like me, then you're wrong, and I don't want to hear any other perspectives. Right. And that, that reminds me of this other aspect of Washington, which was not only was he a very articulate messenger mm -hmm. for these principles, he conducted himself with a level of civility, which doesn't mean he was squishy, that I think the rest of us can emulate. In other words, he debated often with, yes. with people with whom he disagreed, and he conducted himself in a way that's a model for the rest of us. We have lost that art, that skill in the United States, mm -hmm. because we don't want to disagree. No, no. We, we, we don't want... <laughs> We want to be in our safe zones or safe spaces. We want our, you know, puppy and our will be in our hot cocoa. And, and I think this comes back, Kevin, to the breakdown of the family, which you have really seen happen horribly so in the black community. You know, my parents, before I could eat dinner, uh, you know, as a, a little kid in Atlanta, I had to take one story out of Atlanta Journal Constitution. I had to give a brief summation of the story. They taught me how to think. And they taught me how to be able to articulate, you know, if there's something that I believed in, not run away and say, I don't want to hear you because you're this microaggression or some of these other things. And, and that is what has so affected the level of, of civility, because people are not open to what this country was all about, debating ideals. Right. And every in every generation of our country's history, we see someone, some visitor from afar, from some other country, comment, probably right in the early days, obviously, about what they might call the quintessential American spirit. And in the 1820s and 30s, that most famous writer and commenter was Alexis de Tocqueville. Mm -hmm. And as I was rereading Up From Slavery recently, it, it struck me for the first time how similar Washington, who of course was born in Virginia, mm -hmm. and de Tocqueville write about America, that, that American spirit, mm -hmm. which is that forget the external influences. Forget, I mean, they couldn't even comprehend the level of government dependency we have now. Yeah. 
let's just lean on one another in those moments when we have to. But most of the time, let's just hustle. Let, let's, let's just get down to what we as human beings know to do, which is to work hard. And I think as we fast forward to the 21st century, more and more Americans recognize that that's what we're lacking, but they have a difficult time understanding what the solution is. And so we, we, we grasp for public policy answers. What Your list, of course, is a very good one. But ultimately, it comes back to community and to the culture. It does. And, and always, as we, we think about the next steps from these podcast episodes and the work we do here at the Policy Foundation, try to give people a sense of what they can do. And it might be getting involved in a particular policy initiative. It might be, in this case, getting involved in the Booker T. Washington initiative. But really, it starts at home. It does start at home. And I think that's a great call to action. You know, we were recently talking to a group of individuals. And I said, look, why don't you take this book up from slavery and have a, a, a discussion group about it? You know, we have the Oprah Winfrey book list and all this. Stuff. Well, why don't we have a discussion uh, about this? And, and why don't we start to look at how we can bring this into our high schools, how we can get this into our colleges and universities to, to say, here's the model of a person that we can look to for solutions that we see today. And so we need to have that broader conversation uh, because... You know, I'm sick and tired of the culture that, 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 you know, Hollywood dictates or the entertainment elites or whatever. They, you know, try to push down on us, you know, the direction that we should go. And they try to push down on us the, the people that we should be worshiping or what have you. And I think it's time that we just say time out on the court. You know, one of the things I like because I'm a, a college uh, sports nut. And so I'm kind of going through a little withdrawals right now because there's no college football or basketball. But. When you see that team, when they come back on defense and they get down, they slap the floor. It's like, bring it on. You know, we're on a run. We're going to stop you. You're not going to score on us this time. And I think that's where we're coming to that moment in the United States of America, that, that restoration, that rugged individualism, where we're going to slap the floor and we're going to say, no more. And that's an important turning point, but it, it is something that starts in the culture. It starts at the home. It starts in our communities. It starts in our churches as well. Well, that's right. And, and that reminds me of a, a part of Up From Slavery, which you know, the headline would be, it doesn't have to be fancy to accomplish those things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's when Washington is traveling to Tuskegee mm -hmm. to accept formally the job or you know, begin the work of building the Institute. And it's a couple paragraphs. And this is actually what reminded me of de Tocqueville because they're, they're each of those, those men is such a good writer in describing the scene. Yeah. And so there he is walking through Alabama and people don't know there's going to be a visitor. They might have heard of him once mm -hmm. he shows up. Well, he wasn't quite as famous then as he would be later. But his point was he would walk into these very simple cabins, most of them one room, mm -hmm. There were multiple generations in that cabin, as was customary, of former slave families, mm -hmm. intact families, most of them. Yes. And that changes in starting in the 1960s, as you and I have discussed. And his point was there was perhaps a shortage of material wealth, although the home was pristine, the family relationships were pristine. Obviously, people very well versed with what they were doing with their hands and maybe a little bit about what was going on politically. But he said what was most impressive was that they had their priorities in order. Mm -hmm. So family, faith, 
country, even though they were former slaves, yes. all the priorities. And we have lost that. It's almost as if most of us in the 21st century United States are spoiled brats. Well, that's not cool. <laughs> Family, faith, freedom, that's not cool. I mean, that, that's not something you can go out and rant and rave about. You know, to, to get a tear in your eye when the uh, national anthem is played, that's not cool. Mm -hmm. You know, it's better to, to take a knee. We, we have to have a reversal on our fundamental beliefs and values. And, and that is, is so important or else none of this, all of the great things that this country has been in these, what, 228, almost uh, 38, almost years, it's going to be lost. It will absolutely be lost. You know, just recently, you know, we had Texas uh, Independence Day, March the 2nd, 1836. And, and I just sat back and looked and I just thought, how many people know that today is Texas Independence Day? You know, how many of these folks that have moved into Texas really thought and stopped and understood? How many folks have ever been to Washington on the Brazos? And see, when we start to lose those little bitty historical pieces and nuggets of who we are, uh, then it's very easy to be manipulated going forward. And so, again, that's why I think it's so important to reach back and study and understand this man. Because what we need to do with our education system, what we need to do to restore this country is so simple. It's not really that hard. It's, it's, it's not, you know, calculus. Thank you for that. I, I have been asked over the years by students and classes and, and other people, Kevin, as a historian, what are the lessons that you know about history? Sometimes people will say history repeats itself. There are patterns. I'm not sure it repeats itself exactly. But actually, one of those lessons that I would submit to you is that when any society begins to erase very intentionally earlier phases in its history, it's up to, up to something bad. Well, that's why this whole thing about tearing down these statues is not good. Look, uh, I remember what the Taliban did at Bamyan province in Afghanistan. We know what the Islamic State was doing in northern Iraq and in Palmyra, uh, Syria, destroying historical artifacts. When you destroy a, a, a sense of people's history, you destroy their purpose. And therefore, you can recreate history uh, in whatever way that you, you seek. And I think that is starting to happen, sadly, here in the United States of America. I mean, think about it. Every single one of the faces up there on Mount Rushmore, someone could find something wrong with them. Sure. And the next thing you know, what, do we demolish them and, and create new faces? You just asked a question early on in this podcast. Why is it that we don't talk about Booker T. Washington? Why is it that you can go into the black community and, and everyone knows about W.B. Du Bois, but people don't know about Booker T. Washington? Because someone is revising history for their own ideological purpose. And we need to be aware of that and take some steps to correct that, right? So one of the next steps that will encourage listeners to this episode to take is to read up from slavery. Absolutely. And I imagine most people listening have not, don't feel guilty, just get a copy of the book yeah. and read it. And I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. We might have some, some guidelines for discussion down the road because the more you and I talk about this around Texas and elsewhere, we realize that there's a real hunger for that. Mm -hmm. And people are really inspired when, when they read that. And people from all walks of life. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's actually the, the core of the message. It's an American story. Exactly. It's an American story of, of a kid that was a slave that looked into a schoolhouse and it, it, it set a fire within him. Just the same as the American story of once upon a time there were founding fathers that had the fire of liberty that was burning within them. And, and we need to go back and reclaim those stories and we need to reclaim those, those, those histories and those individuals. 
So as we wrap up, Alan, a couple of questions certainly related to Booker T. Washington, but on a, on a couple of different subjects, because I think our listeners will be interested to, in hearing what you have to say. We've talked about public policy. We've talked about some important historical figures. We've talked about education, but we've not talked about Washington, D.C. <laughs> How much more time we have? <laughs> In as, as, as hopeful a way as you and I can be yeah. about the future of the country, and of course we are optimists about it, yeah. although I think all of us who follow public policy are just frustrated with the state of things right now. My question for you on behalf of listeners would be, what do we need to be paying attention to in, in, in Washington, whether it's a specific issue or patterns, and how can we change what seems to be a pretty negative trajectory of things? I would tell you that this is a turning point, a critical moment uh, for the American people. This is no longer about Republican or Democrat. It is about the relationship between the individual and the institution of government. Uh, and it is about the philosophy of governance uh, in that relationship. There are three philosophies that are out there. There's a progressive socialist philosophy, there's a progressive philosophy, and there's a constitutional conservative philosophy. It, you know, And everything else can pretty much so fall within that. We need to go and, and, and ask ourselves, do we want to have individuals to go to Washington, D.C. that do not believe that we can make the right decisions for ourselves? They don't understand the left and right limits of, of government. They don't understand the rule of law. Uh, they don't understand that this is a constitutional republic, not a constitutional monarchy. And those are some very basic, fundamental things that we need to discuss. And we have to start looking at who we're sending to Washington, D.C. Look, now, there, there are some people in, in certain places in the United States of America, you know, I remember when the drill sergeants told us we were stuck on stupid. Okay, they, they just like to have someone dictate to them. Uh, but when I look at here we are sitting in Austin, Texas, the capital of the great state of Texas, the fact that Austin, Texas resembles more so San Francisco than it does a city in Texas that tells me that we are not paying attention to the relationship between the individual and the institution of government, because that philosophy of governance should not be existing anywhere here in the state of Texas. So I think that it is a challenge to us, as Franklin told Mrs. Powell, that we have a, a republic if we can keep it. We need to study and, and uh, educate ourselves first and foremost. And this is not just our kids, it's us, the grown-ups. On, on what it means to live in the United States of America. Because if not, we're going to continue to elect people. We're going to continue to have this pendulum swing that goes from one side to another side. And we never have a steady state that looks 30 to 40 years down the road. I am sick and tired of in the United States of America, our policy decisions are based upon election cycles. It's not based upon visionary leadership. And that's why you guys here are so important, because Texas is so important. Uh, and I think that you have a bigger role than a Heritage or AEI or any of these other guys, because you're on the ground right here in, in the state that is a beacon of liberty, economic growth, entrepreneurship. And y'all have the story to tell and y'all have the mission to embark upon. Well, I agree wholeheartedly because... Well, you have to. I, I, I have to, but I, I truly believe that because... As you know, every single good idea that the United States Congress has ever passed started in a state. That's right. And I think we've got to get back to that proper understanding of the relationship, of course, between the federal government and the individual, which actually ought not be much of one. No. To the second point, which That's is right. that it's, it's in states where sovereignty resides. That's right. 
Second question, somewhat related, but this is also kind of a, a next step kind of question that our listeners often want to hear from our guests, and that is about what you've read that has been formative for you or what you read every day or every week that you find really insightful. In other words, the underlying assumption in that question is there's a lot of nonsense to read. Yeah. How, how do we cut through the noise and read this stuff that really matters? Well, I just finished a book written by uh, John Antal, A-N-T-A-L. He was a, a man that I served with on active duty there in Korea in 1995, and it's called Seven Leadership Lessons of the American Revolution. Incredible study. Uh, and, and, and again, it's one of those very short to the point type of books that offers incredible lessons for us. Uh, and I'm starting now on a book called Receding Tide that talks about uh, the battles of Vicksburg and Gettysburg and, and how that shifted the, uh, the Civil War. History matters. It does matter. Colonel Allen West, it has been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us Thanks, today. Kevin. I encourage all of you who are listening to read up from slavery to learn more about the Booker T. Washington Initiative, because all we're trying to do with that is take back America. That's it. Thank you. Blessings. You bet. Thanks again for being part of the Foundation Podcast, which is sponsored and produced by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Visit us at texaspolicy.com to learn more.